Hey there, my name is Eric Massey. I have a Master of Divinity from Abilene Christian University. I've worked as a healthcare chaplain and as a young adult minister, and higher education was never something that was really emphasized when I was discerning my call to ministry. Honestly, I never thought I would go to seminary. Thankfully, and to my surprise, seminary was one of the best decisions that I ever made in my whole life. It textured and colored my faith in a way that I never thought was possible, and I cannot imagine my faith without it. Which has led me to wonder if there's a way to talk about how seminary isn't the scary, antiquated, or unnecessary thing we might think it to be. On this podcast, we'll introduce you to seminary professors talking about their areas of expertise to introduce you to topics that you might hear in seminary, but not necessarily every Sunday school class. So, whether you've been in ministry a long time or are just now starting to discern a call, or just like hearing about theology and history and higher education in the Christian world, this is probably the podcast for you. This is Seminary Isn't Scary. In this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Jeff Childers, professor at the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University and director of the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. When I first became a Christian, my understanding of church history was fairly simple. Jesus died, rose again, saved us from our sins, and now we're here. After a few years in seminary, I found that church history was immeasurably complicated. In that complication, it was rich and full and life-giving in ways that I didn't expect. Dr. Childers is going to talk to us about the historian's task, the formation of the biblical canon, and the importance of historical literacy in everyday life. I hope you find this episode as engaging as I did, so I hope you enjoy. I'm here today with Dr. Jeff Childers uh, at the Graduate School of Theology. Jeff, thank you for being here. Hi, it's my pleasure. Um, I want to start us off with uh, just some introductions, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I, uh, I'm currently teaching mainly church history in the Graduate School of Theology here in uh, Abilene, Texas, but I grew up in California. And uh, when I was a young adult, I had really no clue what it is that I wanted to do with my life. Uh, college wasn't really on my horizon so much. I spent my time in construction work. So first few years of my working life were in construction, electrical work, uh, welding, things like that, uh, which, uh, which paid pretty well. And I learned some interesting skills. That was, a, that was a nice phase of my life. But I'd grown up in, uh, in a Christian home and in a church family and had this sense deep down that I needed to do something with my life as a young adult that would really sort of upgrade my sense of commitment to what God was calling me to do and who he was calling me to be. And I had no clue what that would look like, but I'd heard about a school uh, that I could attend that would help me sort of think through those things. So I quit my work in construction and electrical work and uh, left California and went to this school. It was sort of a discipleship training school. Learned a lot about scripture, learned a lot about faith and what it was about 
Christianity and my own faith that I really cared about and, and wanted to cling to. It was a night school, so I could work at Graybar Electric during the, the daytime, you see. Yeah, there you go. And uh, do night classes in scripture and uh, theology and church history and biblical languages and things like that, and just sort of find my way as a, as a disciple. Okay. Le- leaving the lucrative field of welding for the more lucrative field of church history. <laughs> well, yeah, with a one or two sort of links between the between them. Yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt that uh, some of the construction work paid well. Yeah. And uh, that construction is a great place to practice discipleship. But it didn't really feel as uh, satisfying to me as, uh, as I would like for it to. Sure. And you, you mentioned a bit about the the kind of journey getting there, but I am curious a little bit more specifically about what attracted you to church history so much. Yeah. Well, I went to this school, as I was saying, and it was uh, not really a college, just sort of a discipleship training school based at a, at a church in Houston. And while I was there, I learned that I loved learning, and college hadn't been on my horizon before. But while I was at this school, I discerned with the help of some advisors who saw some things in me that they thought they wanted to encourage that I, 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 I was a good learner and a good teacher and a good, good preacher as well. So they had me taking college classes while I was also doing this uh, night program and giving me a lot of practice in ministry. And it was during that time that I discerned a, a call to ministry. I had the chance to do some youth internships during the summer, the chance to do some congregational ministry under really wise and helpful and encouraging mentors. And so when I finished that program, having earned uh, both a certificate of completion of the three-year program and an associate of arts degree in English language at <laughs> San Jacinto Junior College, I went to uh, went to a congregation in North Central Texas and started preaching full time. Now that place was pretty close to the Graduate School of Theology in Abilene. It was about a, a sixty mile commute. So, uh, following the advice of some of my mentors, I decided to to finish out my undergrad work at ACU and start graduate work. And that's where I really developed a love for history. I really get, um, get a lot out of thinking through where things have come from. You know, different people have different ways of making sense out of what they experience. And uh, one of the ways that is sort of my go-to technique is to think about where something came from. How did we get here? Where, how did this happen? How did things uh, turn out so that we're experiencing the way we are now? And that leads to questions of history. So that's probably why I developed an affinity for the history of the church, uh, because I make sense out of my life and out of the world, the meaning, the universe, and everything by <laughs> thinking about its historical background. Well, and I, I think that sort of sets up well what I, I wanted to talk to you today, although I think I would love to talk to you more about uh, CSART at some point. But today I think we, we want to talk about the basics of canons and creeds or councils and things that you kind of cover in, in, in church history. So I want to I start broadly with uh, the historian's task when we talk about history. Yeah. What 
are we talking about? What is history? Well, I know you ask that as a pretty simple question, but it's a it's a deeper question maybe than it looks like at first glance. And at one level, people use the word history just to mean what happened. History is George Washington was the first president of the United States. That happened. Or Constantine converted to Christianity in the fourth century, and that happened. So in one sense, history is simply what happened. But historians have to wrestle with the fact that there are different ways of talking about the things that happened, that uh, the past is the past. And without uh, time travel, <laughs> it's, it's difficult uh, for us to know everything that happened in all of its detail. So really, history is about telling the story of what happened. Um, and that involves looking at historical facts and uh, then trying to link them together to show how they relate to one another and how a, a, a document and uh, uh, the um, archaeology of a church ruin and, um, and the um, events of a, an ancient chronicle all correlate together to give us a better sense of what happened in the past. So history really is telling the story of what happened, and that means there's always some interpretation involved. Uh, if somebody's looking at the 11th century, for instance, and they want to ask the question, what is the background to the Crusades? That's a different question than uh, how did they farm in the 11th century? <laughs> uh, now, those questions might actually be related uh, because uh, their farming techniques uh, relates to the feeding of armies, which relates to the Crusades. Uh, on the flip side, a book about farming techniques in the 11th century might have to pay attention to the Crusades because Crusaders brought back to Western Western Europe, different recipes and different ingredients and different livestock. And, you know, so that would, that would change farming uh, practices and techniques. But the fact is, the question that you ask of the historical record shapes dramatically the answers that you're going to get. And so there are any number of possible tellings of the 11th century, for example, or the 4th century or the 1st century. And it's not that one is necessarily better than the other, or that one's right or one's wrong. It's just that they all have a particular perspective. So uh, when we read history or when we hear history, one of the things that I think it's important for us to understand is that history is always being told from a particular perspective, usually shaped by someone's particular questions, what it was that they were, they were interested in, agriculture or the Crusades, for example, and that's going to shape things in a different way. Well, I think I'm curious when when you say something like that. Um, obviously, think people are going to come at particular events from different perspectives, trying to glean different bits of information or find some clarity in different areas. Yeah, I'm curious about not all perspectives on historical events are created equal. As much as there's a lot of interpretation involved, there's I'm assuming a level of uh, professionalism maybe is the word I'm looking for, but more a, a criteria that historians are working with to make sure that their their interpretations hold weight. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. To say that every telling of history has a perspective is not the same as saying every telling is as good as every other telling. 
uh, or that objectivity is impossible. Good historians strive for objectivity. They always have a starting point. They always have a perspective. And the good ones will acknowledge that and, and, and own that and tell you what it is up front. Um, but it, that doesn't mean that certain things didn't happen rather than other things. You know, stories about Abraham Lincoln as a, a zombie hunter are pretty fun or a <laughs> vampire slayer. But those don't have quite the same credence as some <laughs> other things about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, or to think about some more modern retellings, there, there are people advancing histories of World War II and especially Nazi Germany uh, who suggest that the Holocaust never happened. Because they're, you know, they're looking at certain bits of evidence, and uh, their agenda wants to wants to er lead them to erase that from the memory. And historians, responsible historians, are saying, "Well, that's that's not the case. Sure, every telling has its own subjectivity to it. Every historian has subjectivity, but it's not the case that um, every story is as good as every other one." So historians want to look very carefully at all of the data. They want to be honest about their perspectives. They want to be honest about the questions they're asking, and they also want to subject their findings and their conclusions to other historians so that there will be a community of discernment, getting a sense of what things make sense and what don't, where the holes and gaps are, and how we might want to look at things differently based on what the larger group uh, thinks. But the fact is, one of the reasons there are different conclusions to some of the questions historians ask, including about the history of Christianity, is because history is complicated. And this is one of the reasons why some people would prefer not to deal with it. <laughs> uh, Abraham Lincoln, it turns out, was complicated. And uh, telling the story of his motivations in the Emancipation Proclamation, for instance, is not a simple matter. Uh, there were multiple motives. And at the end of the day, we can't really know what he was thinking inside. So when people ask a question like, why did Constantine convert to Christianity, that's a complicated question. And we, um, we have some theories, we can suggest some possibilities, but different historians are going to tackle that in different ways. Where did the Bible come from? Why did the Crusades happen? Our tendency is to want to want to find some very simple answers to those questions, preferably a fill-in-the-blank kind of answer. One thing accounts for these massively complicated historical events, and that's simply not the way it is. So reading different historians and allowing historians to interact with each other um, when they come to different conclusions is one of the ways that we sharpen our understandings and get a sense more reliably of what actually happened. So yeah, I want to affirm <laughs> that uh, historians are not totally objective in every respect, but uh, a degree of objectivity is possible, uh, and we can agree on some things that happened, although it's really hard to explain why something happened. That's the thing that people usually want to know more than anything else. Why did Constantine convert to Christianity, for example? Uh, but the why question is one of the hardest questions for historians to answer uh, because causation is a tough thing to nail down. Just because something came before something else doesn't mean it caused it or that it's a sufficient cause. There might have been many factors in producing the Crusades, for example, 
or uh, motivating Abraham Lincoln to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. So history can be complicated. This is one of the reasons why people are a little frightened of it, especially when it comes to questions of faith, mm. where uh, complexifying our conclusions about faith is not always welcome. But God works in history. History's complicated. God's complicated. <laughs> so the intersection of faith and history is a complicated one, too. Well, and I think that leads me into into my next question, which is what what does it benefit us for, for us being sort of non historian folk, uh, professional ministers, lay people alike? Uh, what does it benefit us to to study church history a little bit more? Yeah, that's a that's a question I think about a lot. Uh, having come from a background where it wasn't automatically the case that I would go into church history as a professional. Uh, or working in congregational ministry, uh, where uh, in, by the hospital bed or preaching from the pulpit or uh, working with youth, it's not automatically obvious in a simple way how church history relates to those things. So, but it does. So how does it and, and what's the reason for doing it, especially for ministry professionals? Honestly, one of the answers is one of the obvious answers. Uh, the facts matter. There are facts. Some mm -hmm. things happened. Other things didn't. Uh, it re it's not going to be a better world if we end up thinking that the denial of the Holocaust is just as valid as recognizing it existed. So it does matter what we think about what happened in the past. It, it shapes us. And studies, especially in uh, sort of millennials and Gen Z, what, what, however we define those, you know, those terms, right? Uh, but younger adults uh, increasingly are asking questions about different faith traditions. Why do people believe different things? Where do these things come from? What is, what is the difference between them really deep down? And it, we're not doing anybody a service if our ministry professionals aren't able to address some of those questions from a learned point of view. So people need to know the names, and they need to know the terms. Um, they need to know some of the events and that some things happened to before other things, that it didn't all happen in some you know ethereal, nebulous, uh, platonic world of ideals, but it actually happened along um, historical progression. Uh, I think it's important to be, you know, in, in being an educated minister, just to have a sense of these things and to know where to go to answer questions that come up. Also, it's really valuable to know some things about one's family of origin. This sort of applies a, a therapeutic model, mm -hmm. maybe. But in a sense, I, as a, a Christian, as a believer, and someone who's active in my local congregation and in ministerial leadership, I am the child and the grandson of the people who went before me. And there are things I say because of what they said. There are things I do because of what they did. There are things I tend to prefer because of what they did, which is not to say that I just uh, – imitate everything that came from the past. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes I do things that are opposite of what my dad or granddad did because I want to be different, right? <laughs> but without knowing my dad and granddad, sometimes I don't recognize that my motivation for doing that is to act out a little bit in opposition to the past, right? A little youthful rebellion. 
Um, understanding our family of origins, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the wonderful, the admirable, the praiseworthy, as well as the icky and the messy, that helps us get a sense of who we are, why we do what we do, and and what that means uh, for us. I think it helps us to be healthier in our own roles as youth workers or missionaries or, or leaders in a congregation or whatever it is that, uh, that we're doing uh, as we lead other people in, uh, in those settings. Now, not only is it good to learn about a family of origins, but I think it's important for us to realize as Christians, Christians who affirm the incarnation of Jesus Christ in the world, that we're basically affirming that God steps into the world and uh, acts in it, that his approach to the world's problems is to enter the world and engage those problems uh, in, uh, in ways that are incarnational, that are real, that are solid, that are physical. Or to put it differently, the Judeo-Christian tradition strongly affirms that God acts in history and that the events of history are not just the events of human beings, but that God is involved in those things as well, that he's intervening along the way, that he's present in them. So learning about those things is a way really of communing with God. And in particular, it grows out of a, a, a belief in the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. Christianity has always been a historical religion. It's affirmed that the events of salvation are events in history, like the Exodus, for instance, or the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that we engage in practices like baptism or the Lord's Supper that connect us to those historical moments. Uh, and they do so with real wine and real bread and with real water in real time. Uh, those are all affirmations of God's activity in history in ways that link the past and the present and the future together. There's a sense in which to be a Christian is to be a historian because a lot of what Christianity is is uh, the business of appropriating the past and modeling one's life after the events of a person who lived 2,000 years ago and then leaning into the future consummation of what he started, which will come, we believe, as an historical event. So uh, history is absolutely integral to living the life of faith. I think, too, one, one more thing, and I could talk about this, of course, all day, but um, one more thing, especially for ministry leaders, has to do with uh, the, the value and benefits of history for shaping us as ministers, whatever the ministerial calling might be. Uh, it's important for us to learn what things are at the core of the faith and what things are more peripheral. Uh, and when you look down through the centuries and see what things people were fighting over, uh, what things they were discussing, what things show up over and over and over again, you begin to get a sense of the things that, that really matter. And what things maybe are, are slightly more peripheral and maybe not, not, not worth uh, fighting over with quite the same vehemence as core beliefs and core practices. And there's just a lot of great ideas from church history. Uh, one of the things that people sometimes think is that if I spend too much time in history and with tradition, that my creativity will be stifled. Hmm. 
I will be much more creative if I can just sit in my own office and think of things myself. Of course, I'm speaking with a little bit of irony because chances are good you by yourself in an office trying to come up with things is not going to be nearly as creative as engaging these people from past centuries who have ideas you've never thought of, who have practiced things in ways you've never experienced, uh, who might seem a little odd, but that's okay because you'll seem a little odd to them as well if they could speak for themselves. And uh, studying them and reading about them provides a lot of interesting ideas about faith and about practice. Uh, including the practice of ministerial leadership. Now, it's true when I'm working with middle schoolers, for instance, I don't apply church history every time I'm with <laughs> those middle schoolers, right? But recently we did a series in uh, Jesus Freaks, which was all about the history of martyrs down through the centuries. And when my wife and I acted out the martyrdom of Felicitas and Perpetua <laughs> from the early third century in North Africa, the middle schoolers thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, and they, they learned some things, you know, about what it meant to stand up for your faith in the third century. Yeah, it takes some creativity to apply <laughs> these things. But uh, the Christian tradition, if we're – the more familiar you are with the Christian tradition, the greater the depth of creativity and um, responsiveness, flexible responsiveness, we'll be able to have as ministerial leaders. Hmm. No, I like that. I'm curious about what, um, since we're since we're obviously dealing with a history that that covers a pretty long period of time. When we're studying church history, maybe if we're we're coming to it from the first time, and we're reading historians who have done a lot more reading of source material than we have, what kinds of things are historians dealing with? What kinds of materials are they dealing with when they're attempting to look at church history and, and get to the what what happened of church history? Right. Sort of the tools of the trade, mm-hmm. and especially the, the historical evidence. And it's really all the stuff. Um, <laughs> there, There's a lot of stuff. You know, there are the the literary documents that have survived down through the centuries, like uh, some of Augustine's treatises or uh, Ephraim the Syrian's hymns. Uh, So there are texts that we read, and some of these texts give us keen insight into the minds of other Christian disciples from past centuries, and they tell us a lot about their their contexts. But there, there is also the kind of sources that is more documentary, like um, laws mm. and um, uh, rules of faith, uh, creedal statements. These are not so much literature. They're not. They're not letters. They're not treatises. They're not commentaries um, or liturgies. Uh, but they give us information as well. Some of the most fun in, uh, data is the archaeological data. One of the things about some of the the treatises and uh, other literary sources that we look at is that these are coming mainly from really well-educated elite folks, and most Christians were not that. You know, most Christians, like most people in human history, are people who 
probably couldn't read or couldn't read that well, and they didn't leave traces behind in the literary record that we can find. But they did live in the real world, and there are traces in archaeology as we excavate towns and villages and churches and monasteries. So some of that is the evidence. Coins um, actually is an important uh, piece of evidence for reconstructing history because we're able to date some things based on based on the coins that we discover. So historians are dealing with a wide range of data, and it is not the case that everyone who has a, a passing interest in church history is going to be able to come an ex, become an expert in all that data. They're, in, they're, they're often hard to interpret. They're in different languages, um, and they're in obscure sources in esoteric libraries, right? Uh, <laughs> But what you want to do is to read historical surveys written by people who know those materials and sources and uh, to read uh, several of those, not just one, but maybe kind of read one church history survey alongside another, alongside another, and that will give you know, the non-expert a perspective on these materials because a historian may spend uh, more of her time working out of writers like Augustine, and then the next historian will spend more of his time working out of the archaeology. And so uh, their telling of the story will be slightly different. Yeah. So I want to, while we have you here, I want to throw at you what I, I think becomes one of the stickier conversations that we can have about church history, which is the Bible. We have a collection of writings that we hold as Holy Scripture that holds importance to our faith. But as you've sort of been talking, that book itself is also not divorced from history. We have it through a series of events. It came to us somehow. So when we talk about, say, biblical canon, what, is, what are we talking about when we say that? Yeah, the word canon, it's a funny word. C-A-N-O-N, right? Not the big gun. Correct, but, yeah. Uh, it's a word that comes from the Greek that means a ruler, the kind of thing that you would use to see whether something fits or measures up. Uh, so usually when people use the word canon, they're talking about exactly what you were you were saying, um, the Bible, the Christian Bible, or maybe the, the scriptures of whatever religious group you're talking about, right? Like the Quran for... Uh, Muslims. But uh, Christians also use the word canon a little more broadly, talking about what, uh, what we might think of as the whole canonical tradition. That is, these uh, practices and beliefs that come out of the first generations of Christianity that uh, include the writings of Scripture but also include other things that were being said and done and even the whole historical process through which God was working to, to collect those writings and uh, to, to vet them and uh, to affirm them as received scripture. Uh, so it is partly the Bible, but it's also partly the people and the processes um, that are, were involved in collecting Scripture and then uh, applying it and trying to understand the essence of it, the gist of it, the core of it in those early generations. And that is the canonical tradition of Christianity, which has at its heart the Bible. 
Right. So how do we how do we get from this sort of ragtag, really close to post Jesus group of folks to a collection of writings that we're making a decision on 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 whether or not how do we include this into the hierarchy of how we understand our faith? How did that process happen as far as we can tell? Yeah, well, uh, one answer is the Bible just appeared magically on the bookstore <laughs> shelf, right, um, in a contemporary English version. Uh, but that's that, that's obviously not true. I say obviously, but the fact is, unless you actually come to grips with the historical realities, it's possible to hold that kind of a view about where the Bible has come from. And then – uh, then my, you know, middle schoolers encounter other facts when they're in school or my college students go online and they read blogs about um, other texts and uh, read other tellings of the story about where the Bible came from. And then they come to me with all of these questions. Uh, and they should. They should come with all of these questions. And uh, they're good questions. Um, where did the Bible come from? You know, early Christians inherited this belief from really from the Jews that there would be this body of texts that could function as an authoritative guide to life and faith and practice um, that would outlive its original context, Hmm. you know, uh, that uh, the prophet Isaiah may have written centuries before, but what he said still matters in the first century. The writers of the New Testament show this. The rabbis show this. Jesus shows this. So Christians inherit that sense from the Jews, so they didn't invent it. Um, But their first Bible, really, as early Christians, was in fact what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, which they were reading mostly in Greek. But in the New Testament writings, when they talk about Scripture, they're nearly always talking about what we call the Old Testament, uh, which they were receiving as authoritative for faith and life and Christian practice. Uh, But they also received the stories that had been told them by people who knew Jesus, because Jesus didn't write any books, so far as we know, right? (laughs) Certainly none that have come down to us. Um, But his immediate followers did. They wrote books, uh, and they told stories, and then some of these got written down in the next generation or in the next generation. And these things formed gospels. They formed collections of epistles, treatises, the books that we associate with the New Testament. These books were being written in the generations immediately after the time of Jesus. And as they were being written, I think um, Christian followers who were able to rely on word of mouth and on living tradition saw their value uh, in, uh, in sustaining faith and perpetuating faith in the centuries uh, – well, in the generations following them. So they preserved them. They held on to them. Paul would write a letter, but somebody kept it, and then somebody copied it. Maybe Paul's collection of letters is one of the first collections. A lot of scholars think that's possible. Uh, So Paul's letters uh, were collected together, and then they were shared from one church to another. And as these things were read, well after their original readings, people found them valuable for staying in touch with that original generation of apostles and the original testimony about who Jesus was and what Jesus was up to and what God was trying to do through Christ in in Christians and in the church. So they preserved them and passed them around. Uh, These got circulated 
and people found them extremely valuable. They already had this notion of uh, a textual canon that they associated with what we call the Old Testament. It's often called the Hebrew Bible. Uh, And they began associating that same notion of Scripture, that is, a message from God that is being communicated through these writings that could outlive its original writing with the writings of Paul and Peter and uh, Luke and John and Matthew and Mark and so on. Uh, That's sort of the beginning of the process of the collection of the New Testament canon. It's a complicated story and we frankly don't know don't have as many details as we'd like to have about the story mm. but we're able to look in at it uh, sort of from this distance and uh, plausibly make sense out of what happened as people were reading these texts and interpreting these texts as guides to Christian faith and practice they found them extremely valuable And consequently, they wanted more and more of these texts. Well, you have this letter from Paul. We have that letter from Paul. You have this gospel. We have that gospel. Why don't we share these back and forth? And so at a very early time, they got distributed across the Christian world, which was mainly in the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean and a little bit in the Persian Empire as well. Uh, It's not the case that somebody... Some one person decided what all of these texts should be, and we're going to call this the New Testament canon. It's not the case that there was one council at which a select group of elite people decided what these texts should be. Uh, It was actually a process that happened over the span of several generations. Now, we can point to something like a festal letter written by Athanasius of Alexandria in the middle of the 4th century where he lists the 27 books of the New Testament exactly as we know them and can say, ah, there's, there's a historical document that helps us sort of date this recognition. But he's not the one who created that reality. He was simply observing it. Then we read earlier sources like Eusebius of Caesarea or Origen from the 3rd century We see them talking about uh, these books. Which of these books uh, should we receive as being authentically reliable for telling us about Jesus? Which of these books are a little suspect? Which of these books are really suspect and need to be (laughs) rejected? And uh, there's a whole sort of uh, lineage of early church leaders who were reflecting on those questions for two or three hundred years um, as they're looking at the book, some of which we know, some of which are now lost, uh, many of which we're familiar with from uh, sources outside the Bible, asking these questions. Did it come from an apostle or was it closely associated with an apostle? Was it from early in the tradition? Because if it was widely spread, then that's a pretty good argument for its having come from early in the tradition. Does it represent that early generation? Also, how well does it stack up against the faith that we've received in our preaching, the faith that I confessed at my baptism in a statement of of, of my faith? Uh, does this book fit that or does it not fit that? And if it doesn't seem to fit it, well, then what's gone wrong? 
these are the kinds of questions people were asking in the first few centuries of Christianity, which led to the affirmation of the books of the New Testament as we know them. That Yeah. So immediately there's this sort of – when we talk about scripture in this way, this sense of – Comfort that the, this seems like a much more relatable process than than having a book sort of divinely appear uh, from nothingness. Uh, but at the same time, there's something a little bit disconcerting about how human that process seems, especially when we don't have all the information we might like to have all the details about how that comes about. So I'm I'm curious with that humanness. How do, how do we as Christians approach being honest about, say, that in this case, the history of Scripture, but more broadly speaking, our, our, our past as the church, um, while also being mindful of the decisions our, our forebearers have made? And uh, I don't know. How do, we, how do we bring that to bear constructively on our faith? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I want to fall back again on uh, one of the fundamental confessions of Christianity, and that is that uh, God created the world, and he created the world good, uh, and that Jesus entered the world as God's son, and that God's way of working in the world is incarnational. So this means that God's way of working in the world is incarnational. Uh, (laughs) That is, we shouldn't really be surprised that Uh, God would work through human processes and in history. It's a way – it's the way of sort of thinking of our faith which removes it from the created world and historical processes and human agency. That is the problem. That's the problem. Uh, That's not really true to what we find in Scripture Mm -hmm. and uh, what Christians have affirmed for centuries. Uh, it would be nice in a way, I suppose, if we could have this pristine, unadulterated, no human you know, touching, no fingerprints on it whatsoever <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, that would be maybe the universe I would create. That would be the kind of faith I would make. But that's not what God did. God, according to our beliefs, uh, entered the world and uh, did so in a way that was – uh, completely and fully human. That's what uh, the confession of Jesus' humanity is all about. So this is a bit like asking, well, what days were was Jesus human and what days was Jesus divine? Uh, that's a bad question. Yeah. Uh, the, the belief is that Jesus is human and divine all the time and right the way through. Uh, similarly, God's work in the world has always been through his uh, his creatures, the created order, and so simply because I can detect that there's there that humanity is at work in this um, is does does not mean that there is that anything's gone wrong. This is in fact how God intends to work, and I'm so thankful for that because what I would like God to do is to save us. Right? I would like God to be involved in our lives, to be involved in our world. I would like God to uh, care about the created order that he made and not just dismiss it as if, you know, give up on it as if it didn't matter anymore. That's not what he does in Jesus Christ. Consequently, 
when you begin to look at the simple bare facts of the historical processes, you have to come to grips with human involvement. Um, this doesn't mean that God is not involved any more than affirming Jesus' humanity means that he can't be divine. But it does mean that it's complicated. And as you're saying, it's, it's, it's often hard to, um, hard to interpret. There's this great story about a, the Bishop of Antioch uh, who was asked, hey, uh, we found this gospel which says it was written by Peter. Do you think we should be reading it? And this was uh, a, a question that came from a church in one of the villages in his area. And the bishop said, sure, something from Peter you ought to read. Peter was an apostle. And then he got hold of the gospel and actually read it. And even though it said it was from Peter, uh, he saw the contents of it and that it was supporting a view of the world which denied creation, denied that Jesus was a human being, and advocated an ethic that is not about uh, behaving in a certain way in this world, but about just escaping this world and getting on to the next. It was a Gnostic text. It was a heretical text from his perspective, and I think he was right. so he said, come to think of it, let's not read that book. That is not actually from Peter because it doesn't fit with what we've received from the Jewish tradition about the goodness of the world, about, uh, about Jesus Christ as human and divine, and doesn't fit the sort of ethic which cares about our behavior in this world. Um, so that's not a gospel that we want to affirm. Now, hearing that story does a couple of things for us. It would may do a lot of things, but two things I want to focus on. One is it reminds us of the human element in all this. Of course, the bishop of Antioch wasn't the only one who said the gospel of Peter is, is, is not a canonical gospel. Um, there were others who felt the same way, and it was a, a communal discernment to, uh, to um, not to include that text in the canon. I'm not saying it's not something somebody shouldn't read and, 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 and get information out of about the time period and about what some people who thought of themselves as Christians believed about Jesus and the world, but it was not vetted uh, by the Orthodox Church as canonical scripture because of people like the Bishop of Antioch. Um, however, another thing that it does for us is it shows that these decisions being made were not just power plays on the part of power-hungry people who wanted to control information, to control the hierarchy. Uh, They had – I mean, there definitely are humans like that and mixed motives are a part of all of these stories. But there were other things at work too, real ideas, real beliefs, real concerns over ethics, um, not just conspiracies and power plays that resulted in some of these texts being affirmed and others of these texts being questioned and ultimately rejected. I say that because there's a, there's a particularly uh, influential way of telling this story that wants to read uh, conspiracies and power plays into these moves. Mm. Uh, noticing that humanity is involved is not the same as saying – uh, it can all be boiled down to struggles over power. Sure. And it is an encouraging thought to trust the community to mitigate itself in that way. And also, I think, in a sense, for Christians, trusting God to be active in those things, even if they look messy. 
So I, I want to I want to finish this out. We can't expect everybody to be historians, but it seems important that we know a little bit about ourselves as you're talking about history gives us some details about how we function. So what does it look like for us to be honest about that, to not expect an expertise in history, but to be a little bit more serious about historical literacy with our faith? Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. For me, Kind of jumping into history and learning about the story of how God has worked in the past is it's not just a matter of learning information and, and finding out about you know my family of origins or getting resources for ministry. It's also it's also doxological. It's uh, an opportunity to reflect on how God has worked within and among humans, in spite of humans, uh, to, do, uh, to do the kingdom work that he's invested in through Christ. And that leads me to want to be grateful. That leads me to want to praise. So uh, even if a person couldn't become an expert in church history, there are just such great benefits to be had by reflecting on the story of God's work in the past that is moving into the present and leading us into the future. Uh, So reading some church history surveys that provide these uh, stories in a nutshell is a pretty good place to start. Uh, For professionals, ministerial professionals, I think, you know, you don't have to be an expert in church history, but a higher level of expertise uh, than the than the average layperson needs, um, I think, is something to be expected, because people increasingly have these questions, and for every person who sa- every person of faith who says to you, you know, I don't know what the benefit of learning history is. I don't know why this this isn't this isn't very uplifting to me. <laughs> um, I can find you ten people who are asking questions about why we believe what we believe, where those things came from, uh, and what they're reading and hearing from other sources about that. So you can't afford not to be digging into this a little bit and to be teaching some on it in Bible classes, making references in sermons, uh, conducting uh, you know small group sessions that will lead people through some of the stories of Christian history. Uh, providing a chance to hear some of the questions that they have and also orienting orienting them a little bit like we did with the middle schoolers in the Jesus Freak series <laughs> about about the martyrs. Really, some of my students provide some of the best ideas for me about how to do this. I'm thinking about uh, uh, a student who uh, built a, a youth experience in the Stations of the Cross based on some medieval practices that he found about, found out about in a church history class or uh, small group curriculums that, uh, just this year that some of my students have put together on the basis of origin of Caesarea's <laughs> teachings on prayer or a preacher I know who was inspired by the different modes of interpretation Augustine used to preach to his congregation in different ways. Uh, a hospital chaplain who researched early Christian understandings of the problem of evil and the problem of pain and used those to enrich how he 
intervened and helped in hospital chaplaincy to deal with people who were suffering. Um, another student I know who put together a bunch of uh, cards, sort of trading cards based on spiritual disciplines from down <laughs> through the centuries to use in a campus ministry. Uh, they come up with these great ideas for ways of applying church history that will benefit lay people. Uh, but in order to do that, you have to know the history well enough and the sources well enough to apply them creatively to different modern contexts. Well, Jeff, thank you so much. I want to leave us uh, with a question. Do you feel like seminary is a scary thing? Seminary, uh, seminary can definitely be a scary thing, but it's the scariness of what we've been talking about, the scariness of the truth, mm. uh, the scariness of learning that turns out God is more complicated than you thought and things are more complicated than you thought. And yet at the same time, he is more simple than you could imagine because he is one. And therefore, how do we think through, you know, the apparent paradox of those things? And seminary is one of those places that helps us confront uh, some of those questions and think about them a little more. But I think the real reason seminary can be terribly frightening is because it coaches us in understanding better who God is and that God is not a lot of other things that we sometimes put in God's place. Hmm. For example, he's not the Bible. The Bible is not God. So the Bible shouldn't occupy that place. A particular interpretation of the Bible or a particular doctrine or a particular view or conclusion on some social issue or ethical issue, uh, these things are not God. Only God is God. And the closer you get to God, the more he challenges and disrupts those other things as uh, not being worthy of worship. They may be important, important to study, important to apply, important to reflect on, and uh, they may be crucially important depending on what it is. The Bible is a really important vehicle of God's activity in our personal faith and in advancing his kingdom in the world, but it's still not God. And that can be disorienting if I sort of had this notion that maybe it was God. I wouldn't have put it that way, but uh, there have been times when I treated it that way. And seminary has shown me that that's not the case, that the God is the God who has worked in these historical processes that preserved and present the Bible to us and also coach me in how to read scripture and to interpret it. Uh, if I'll be open to the Spirit of God in shaping me as I do that. Uh, that's, that's something that I learned. You can learn it in other places too, but uh, in other experiences in life, coach us in that for sure. But this is one of the reasons why seminary can be frightening. But for me, that journey has been a reorienting journey that brings me a lot of peace and comfort and has turned out not to be nearly as frightening as I thought because it leads me to a place where I can rely simply on God alone, not on my own understandings or constructs. Mm -hmm. And that, that feels more comfortable to me now. Mm. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you, Dr. Childers, for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been nice to spend the afternoon with you.
people are complicated, and therefore history is complicated, and the church is no exception. While there's a great temptation to view historical figures and events at face value, this perspective can be two-dimensional, and we do a disservice to ourselves and to future Christians when we buy into it. If we claim, as we do, that God acts in history and in people, we have to also acknowledge that he has worked through the 2,000-plus years of people that have come before us. As we do this, we might find, to our surprise, that we've been using the words of these Christians long past for most of our lives. Because to know history is to know ourselves. And in the process, we might learn a little bit more about God. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seminary Isn't Scary. Seminary Isn't Scary is a creation of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University. Our producer is Zane Goggins, and a special thanks to KACU for providing the studio space and all this wonderful equipment. I'm your host, Eric Massey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.